This is Audiblegate. An alliance of authors, narrators and publishers to win justice against Audible. For years, this Amazon subsidiary, the world's largest audiobook retailer, has been ripping off audiobook creators, finding all kinds of inventive ways not to pay us and devastating culture as it goes. But not anymore. We're here to put a stop to Audible's fraud and invite you to join us at audiblegate.com. We formed Audible to design the first digital audio player, to de design the first download transmission system, and yeah. actually to design the first way of securing intellectual property through encryption. Right. This because my, my, my content that I've created over the years was already being ripped off on the Unix internet, and I kind of thought, how will the professional creative class pertain, you know, mm -hmm. sustain themselves uh, in the digital economy if there's no ability to, you know, to keep control of it? Don Katz wants to protect authors and narrators' intellectual property, or so he says. In this interview, Abdiel Leroy talks with famed author Cory Doctorow regarding the double-edged sword of Audible's policy for protecting intellectual property. We invite listeners to decide for themselves who is meant to be protected and profit from this corporate policy. Cory Doctorow, good evening. Actually, good morning for you, isn't it? Well, it's afternoon. It's gone. Yeah. It's just gone midday. Where do we find you? I am in Burbank, California, um, a suburb just outside of North Hollywood, Los Angeles. So I took a perfunctory look at your author bio, and uh, very impressive. I gather you were born and raised in Canada. You're a dual Canadian-British citizen. Yep. I have a... Uh, uh, assumed to be a triple national, I have a U.S. citizenship process in train, so I'll I'll be a okay. uh, I'll have the f like a, a significant chunk of the Anglosphere in my uh, in my travel okay. wallet. And you write science fiction. You've won several awards. You've been nominated for the Hugo Award, and you write nonfiction. You publish wide. Have I missed anything? Uh, well, I, I also, relevant to this discussion, do a lot of policy advocacy. I've done that primarily under the aegis of a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, with whom I've worked for 20 years, including a stint as European director based in London and working uh, primarily on policy questions in Westminster, Brussels, and at the UN in Geneva. And I uh, co-founded a, a British... Uh, sister organization to EFF called the Open Rights Group that is uh, still alive and kicking there and doing a lot of good work in the UK. So are you are you approaching it more from I mean the Audible Gate issue? Are you approaching it more from that standpoint rather than as an author? I don't really separate the two. Um, okay. You know, for me, um, science fiction, in addition to being a way to do the thing that art does, which is that it. Uh, takes a uh, numinous and irreducible uh, emotional feeling that is in the author's mind and transmits it with a greater or lesser degree of fidelity to an audience member's mind. Science fiction is also a way of making an argument about the, the social relations surrounding technology, that it's, it's not just about okay. what gadgets do, it's about who it does them for and who it does it to. And um, that is also the substance of the activism I do. They're really... Um, difficult to separate. One is a 
more abstract, explicit policy uh, approach, and the other one is a uh, more emotional appeal, but both of them are in service to the same end. Okay. And which of your titles have been narrated as audiobooks? Oh, all of them, but none of them on Audible. Um, I do not allow right. DRM on any of my work. And as a consequence, I do not allow Audible to carry any of my work because it has a requirement that, irrespective of whether the author wants it, they will not allow you to sell on their platform unless you use DRM to lock your work to their platform forever. And okay. it was pretty obvious to me from a from a great height and a great distance that Amazon, if it did have the potential to wield market power over its suppliers, it would do so. That's right. definitely been the case with all the other kinds of suppliers that uh, Amazon has ever had. And so it was clear to me that they would do this to writers as well. You know, as a, I, I wrote a book called uh, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free for McSweeney's. That was thoughts and analysis on the question of, of creative labor in the digital era. And one of the rules that I set out there is that if someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you, and then tells you that you're not allowed to have the key to that lock, whatever they say, they haven't put that lock on it for your own benefit, that it's for their benefit, mm. not yours. And the fact that that Audible will not allow authors, rights holders of any kind, not just authors, but, you know, my publishers include uh, Random House and Macmillan and so on, uh, won't allow them to uh, authorize their listeners to remove DRM, even with their own blessing, tells you that the only reason for the DRM, it's not to protect your copyright, it's to allow Audible to uh, make it costly for customers who want to go somewhere else. And the only reason to do that is to make it uh, so that if you choose to go somewhere else, you pay a price as well, because your audience won't follow you somewhere else. The, the economist term for that is a, a high switching cost. And high switching costs okay. are the kind of favored weapon of tech platforms to keep their users locked in. You know, they, they, they don't have users so much as they have uh, hostages. Um, and I should say that, you know, so after some time doing this, my publishers kind of got sick of me saying, well, you can't sell my audiobooks on the, you know, the largest audiobook platform in the world where 90% of the sales takes place. And uh, eventually they said, you know, you can retain your, your audio rights instead. You, we're not going to require you to sign them over when you um, when you do a publishing deal with us at Macmillan or whatever, instead you can sell them on your own, which is what I've been doing. Uh, I um, have been making my own audiobook editions. You know, I'm I'm lucky to live in the center of audiobook recording here in Los Angeles. Skyboat Media, which is where you know many of the audiobooks that you've heard on Random House or even Audible Originals or Macmillan Audio, uh, they're just down the road and they're lovely people and old friends of mine. And, you know, when it comes time for me to do an audiobook, I just head over to the studio and we hire some voice actors. My friend Will Wheaton, who's a wonderful voice actor, lives around the corner from me and he's done a lot of audio for it. We've also had Amber Benson from Buffy do a lot of my audio and, and a, a, a rotating cast of, of wonderful audiobook readers. So we record them ourselves and then I sell them through my own audiobook store and then I sell them also through all the, they also ran platforms, Google Play and, and, uh, Libro FM and, and, uh, and so on. And with the last one, uh, which was last uh, autumn in, in the autumn of 2020, I actually kickstarted pre-sales of my new audiobook, a book called Attack Surface. 
Uh, and that Kickstarter was the most successful audiobook Kickstarter in the history of the world. It raised about $270,000. And so cool. it's definitely been a, um, uh, a powerful way to get my work across. I don't mean to, st- I don't say all of this because I think that, um, we can just, uh, you know, dispense with, with Audible and pretend it doesn't exist and all go our own indie way. But, but rather to say that, you know, I, I do have a significant dog in this fight and, and I care about audiobooks. It's not like I walked away from it because I think audiobooks are a dead medium or anything or didn't care if anyone could get my work that way. I've gone to substantial personal expense and done a lot of work to ensure that all of my work is available as an audiobook. Right. What was the first name you told me? The, the voice actor? Oh, Will Wheaton. He uh, he was uh, he was the young actor on Star Trek: The Next Generation a very long time ago. Played a character called uh, Wesley Crusher, but has since become quite a, a successful actor and voice actor and so on. He's a really lovely chap and a and an absolutely superb audiobook narrator. He was the son of uh, Beverly Crusher, That's right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I wrote him as into a, a, one of my novels as a minor character uh, in into a, a novel called Homeland. And then he read the audiobook and had to read his own lines. And it was delightfully self-referential. We actually put some outtakes of him cracking up while reading his own lines on right. uh, on the Internet Archive, where anyone can find them. So you don't uh, you don't do any of your own narrations. It's all uh, you, you delegate that. I have done. I mean, I do um, uh, a weekly podcast. I'll be recording that right after I speak to you, in fact, where I just read a, an essay or a short story or um, I, I have serialized whole novels that way as well. Uh, I, I was in the room when, when, um, uh, my friend Ben Hammersley came up with the term podcasting back around 2005. And I've had a podcast mm-hmm. since 2006. And, um, you know, I have read many thousands of hours of my work that way. And there is, uh, one yeah. of my, my first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, is available as a commercial audiobook with my narration, as is, um, shortly will be, uh, a short book I wrote in 2020 called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. That's an anti-monopoly analysis of how big tech and surveillance advertising work. Yeah, it's a fascinating and big subject. And very relevant to what we're on about today, because I think that you can see that when firms have monopolies, one of the things that they're able to do is really put the screws to their supply chain. And that's us, right? That's the, that's yeah. the people who make stuff and, and put it in their um, channel. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think we've made the mistake of doing as a creative class is to decide that as between the battle of the giant tech companies and the giant entertainment companies, we should root for the giant entertainment companies in the hopes that if they emerge victorious, more crumbs will fall off their plate and land uh, at our feet than would if the tech giants were the people who who ended up running the uh, the entertainment industry. And I think the reality is that neither set of firms is uh, constitutionally inclined to pay creators uh, a penny more than they than yeah. they can get away with not paying, and that. You know, in addition to things like regulation that set uh, minimum wages for creative work and so on, uh, including, you know, accounting transparency, which is an issue, obviously, great moment in the Audible Gate question, that prohibiting anti-competitive mergers and breaking up firms that grew through anti-competitive mergers is really important. And that's the Audible story. I mean, Audible was a great little standalone company that was doing very well. And Amazon bought them and Amazon used them uh, for leverage 
to extinguish much of the competition, uh, to corner the market, and then to put the screws to its supply chain, which is us, but also, you know, all the, the big five publishers and their audiobook arms, as well as standalone audiobook companies like Recorded Books. And, you know, those firms in turn have been merging and consolidating in order to fight back. And, you know, the giant mega publisher is not going to be any easier for us to get a decent deal out of than the giant mega bookstore slash publisher. But you can see why they're doing it. You know, when when um, the big five publishers, is, or no, I believe it was the big six publishers back then as they were, got together and explicitly colluded to raise ebook prices by forcing Amazon to sell at a minimum price rather than subsidizing ebooks and selling them at a loss in order to sell Kindles and drive rivals out of the market, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission just, just you know, tie them to its bumper and drag them up and down a gravel road for a, for a couple of months because that is radioactively illegal price-fixing behavior. But today, you have Random House, which has since merged with Penguin. So Random House was already the largest publisher in the history of the world. Now they're about twice as big because they're merger with Penguin. And pending uh, the resolution of a Federal Trade Commission investigation, are set to gobble up Simon & Schuster, which would be uh, three of the big six, which would all be then one company. And while it's illegal for the CEOs of those three companies to collude to set prices, it's not illegal for the presidents of three divisions of one company, who used to be the CEOs of three companies, to get together and have a meeting in their shared corporate boardroom to set prices for Amazon. And so you see how monopoly begets monopoly, that when you have a, a single giant firm, it forces all the other firms in its supply chain to organize into monopolies to resist its its uh, abusive bargaining power. And then what you end up with is is the entities at either ends of the supply chain who are incapable for, for various legal and technical reasons to form monopolies or cartels, and that's customers and suppliers. You end up with us as the kind of flapping, loose, disorganized ends of this otherwise super-concentrated supply chain. And it's always going to be easier to extract wins from customers and from workers than it is from other monopolistic entities in the supply chain. And so we will see our fortunes decline no matter what until we get a handle on this stuff. And thankfully, you know, this is something the world's governments are uh, alive to, the UK Competition and Markets Authority report last year on uh, Google and Facebook was excellent, a riveting 480-page read that someone should make an audiobook out of. Um, the, <laughs> the, the Biden administration in July put out an executive order with 78 specific actions on antitrust that uh, it expects its agencies to undertake. And those agencies now have new leadership who are absolutely smashing and brilliant. And I will commend to all of your listeners the uh, seminal essay by the current chair of the Federal Trade Commission, a woman named Lena Kahn. Four years ago, yep. Lena Kahn was a third-year law student at Yale, and she wrote a, a seminal paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox about how Amazon abuses its market authority. Four years later, having graduated from law school and then been out in the world for about two and a half years, she is now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and she is enacting the policies that she set out in Amazon's antitrust paradox as a um, uh, a set of policy prescriptions. And so I think there is movement here. And I think that if, if creators want to be both on the right side of history and on the side of their own economic interests, 
they need to recognize things like wage theft as an epiphenomenon of monopoly. That the reason companies yeah. like Amazon can steal from us is because they don't face competition. And they know that the listeners won't go anywhere. And that means that the writers won't go anywhere. And if the writers don't go anywhere, then the listeners won't go anywhere. We need to, uh, to have viable alternatives in order to discipline these large firms. And one of the ways yeah. that we need to discipline those firms is by breaking them up. Yeah, I was uh, encouraged by the appointment of Lena Khan. I guess what what worries me is that things get so watered down. I mean, you know, for instance, the grandstanding gestures and statements that world leaders made coming to COP26, and then, of course, it all gets diluted. So do you think that Lena Khan and the regulators of her passion and determination are going to be able to overcome the the lobbyists and the entrenched interests that are going to be pushing back? Well, I think Khan is specifically uh, extremely well insulated from the lobbyists. She's She is the, as far as you can get from being an insider. She was literally a law student three years ago. So she is not someone who's got long chummy relations with these people. And, you know, when Khan took uh, the chair, there was a mass exodus of uh, orthodox economists and um, antitrust enforcers from the agency. And the orthodoxy since the era of Reagan and Thatcher has been that monopolies are efficient and the presumption should be that antitrust enforcers should let them alone. And she showed them the door. She didn't beg them to stay and continue to engage in the 40 years of malpractice that they have been guilty of. She watched them go and did a jig, right, as they, as they left. And the new staff is staff that believes in the mission. And to understand just how sensible and committed and plausible Lena Khan's tenure is, you need look only to that July 9th memo from the uh, Biden administration, which I think Khan basically ghost wrote. So w whenever there's a, uh, a changeover in administrations, people who work for pressure groups and public interest groups and NGOs like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, write what's called a transition memo. And they're very wonky. They usually run five or six pages. And they're things like this specific regulation can be tweaked in this way to deliver this material benefit to the constituents we care about. And they're all things that the administration can do, often without congressional approval, on day one. And the 79 items enumerated in the Biden administra administration's antitrust memo of July 9th, are clearly taken from those transition memos. And they are so wonky. And they represent effectively like the life's work of, of campaigners who have really spent years and years locating specific levers of power and gaming out how if someone were to give them a good hard yank, things would change. And so there's stuff like there's a meatpacking bill that's still good law that was passed by the Congress in 1875, and it establishes this specific power for antitrust enforcers to do this to our highly concentrated meatpacking industry. And the meatpacking industry, you know, it, it failed pretty severely to actually slaughter livestock and get it into people's homes during the lockdown, but it sure killed a lot of meatpackers. Um, they were they were charnel houses of, of meatpacking workers because the one of the things that monopolists do is abuse their workforces. And they, they just yeah. it was corporate murder. It was corporate mass murder. 
And, you know, these, these, this memo has clauses that say we will invoke our authority under this 19th century congressional, uh, bill that unequivocally gives us the power to order the meatpacking industry to do the following seven things. And here's how that materially benefits the lives of meatpacking workers and will make the uh, supply chain more resilient and also improve the quality and safety of food that Americans get and, and multiply that by 79. Right. It's just it's just a set of things that are not grandiose pronouncements like these were not intended for public consumption. Right. Anyone who like it's um, in the finance industry, they have a phrase for uh, overly complicated tax evasion structures. It's Migo, my mm -hmm. eyes glaze over. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's eye glazingly technical stuff that only a wonk would love. But that's exactly what you want. It's not empty phrases about how we will work together to ensure the safety and the, the prosperity of the right. American people through competition and the benefits that we all know it can deliver. It's like we are going to walk into this room and we are going to take this specific guy out of his chair and we're going to throw him out the window because that guy is the cause of this problem. Right. And it's just like it's just like 79 defenestrations. And it is amazing. So, well, here's another thing that I'm worried about, perhaps you can reassure me, is that, of course, we hear a lot about the predations of Amazon and Facebook and Google and Apple and so on, but I'm not hearing Audible anywhere near as much or even at all in media. I'm just wondering, do the people at the FTC or the DOJ have the awareness of just how egregious the practices are at Audible. And I would say far more egregious even than what Amazon is doing elsewhere. I have the sense that they know or, or that there is the institutional knowledge about the egregiousness of Audible's practices. Uh, and as yeah. important as it is to me, and it is very important to me, you know, my agent sat me down a couple of years ago and he said, I just want you to understand, I respect your position on this. It's really, you know, you're, you wouldn't be you if you didn't live your principles, but you could have paid off your mortgage and bought another house besides with the money that you didn't get by boycotting Audible. And, and mm -hmm. as important as that is, is, and as significant as those sums are, in the grand scheme of things, relative to the other ways that Amazon abuses its market authority, it's really small potatoes. And I think that's why you don't hear it in the discourse, even though there are lots of ways in which this is causing harm. And the place where you hear it the most is among librarians, uh, because uh, more than half the New York Times bestsellers in any given month are Audible originals. Audible does not allow libraries to have any Audible books in their right. collections. And so if you are someone who relies on public libraries, half the New York Times bestseller list is out of reach because of the unilateral action of a monopolist. So when did you become aware of all the stuff that was going on with Audible Gate, the, the glitch and that kind of thing? And how did you get in touch with our movement? Well, you know, the organizers wrote to me in the midst of my uh, audiobook uh, Kickstarter campaign, in which I, I very forcefully put the case that, you know, buying my audiobooks was a way of striking back at the Audible monopoly. And that, that got um, pretty good play. And I, I then heard from the organizers of the campaign to say, you know, you may be worried about Audible and the way that it abuses DRM, but how would you like some wage theft on the side there? And it's obviously a thing that I'm, I'm very interested in. I should mention that um, in, in next September, uh, Prospect Books is publishing a book I co-wrote with the Australian copyright expert Rebecca Giblin 
Uh, we're still finalizing the title. I think it might be called Choke Point Capitalism, either that or The Shakedown. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be about um, the the creator's side of creative labor markets under conditions of monopoly and how copyright itself is insufficient as a mechanism of addressing that. You know, copyright is like the the lunch money you give your bullied kid. And if he still has to pass through the school gates to get to school, it doesn't really matter how much lunch money you give him. The bullies who are standing at the gates are just going to take it off of him. And so, you know, in our book, we actually uh, tackle specific actionable remedies in that, in that, you know, Lena Connish way of things that you can specifically do, individuals you can specifically defenestrate to make authors' lives better. And one of the one of the policy prescriptions we have is for accounting transparency standards, uh, as well as an audit requirement that would give creators the statutory authority to actually figure out whether or not platforms like Amazon are stealing from them. Um, yeah. be, because, you know, we shouldn't have to be playing criminology and, and following these fragmentary traces that have escaped inadvertently from Amazon's walled garden. We should have full transparency. Amazon certainly has that in respect of its suppliers, right? They, they, if, you know, if Amazon makes an Amazon original suitcase in a factory in Guangzhou, you can bet that they're allowed to send inspectors over and can ensure that the quality assurance is what they've been told it is. But there's no reciprocity. So coming back to the digital rights management issue you mentioned with Audible, if an author is putting a book, an ebook, onto KDP, mm -hmm. they have the option to turn the digital rights management off. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is we don't have that option when it comes to the audiobooks. Correct. And again, this is back to, you know, my first law there. If someone puts a lock on something and then they tell you that you can't have the key, then that lock isn't for your benefit. If if Audible were really concerned with fighting piracy on behalf of its authors, then it would make let authors make the call as they have with the Kindle store. I also want to ask uh, your opinion on a recent development regarding Findaway voices. Now, I don't know... Because you're, you're a wide author, and I don't know if you use Findaway for some of your distribution, but we've had the announcement that Spotify is about to purchase Findaway. Do you have any views on that? Well, I, I didn't know about that until just now. I do use Findaway. They're one of my distribution partners. That's really okay. disappointing. It's the kind of thing that I hope that the FTC will block, because Spotify itself is a, um, a notorious wage thief. So they did all of these deals with um, the major record labels, particularly with Universal Music. Universal Music is the largest of the record labels, the big three labels. They own a significant stake in Spotify. So they're, they're major shareholders. And Universal negotiated a lower per stream rate for its musicians with Spotify so that the money that it got from Spotify would be primarily in the form of dividends, which are the profits that the company makes, instead of royalties, which is the money that mm. uh, Spotify owes to Universal for its musicians, because it has to share the royalties with its musicians. And it doesn't have to share the dividends with its musicians. And so it allowed yeah. the musicians to get lower wages in order to divert this, that money to its shareholders. It's, it's literally perfectly zero sum. Every dollar that they don't pay to a musician is a dollar that's available to be paid as a dividend. And so Universal resolved that conflict in favor of its shareholders it also, along with the other two major record labels, 
negotiated minimum payments from uh, Spotify. So Spotify would say, every month we're going to send you whatever, $150 million. And it doesn't matter how many streams we've played, you're going to get 150 mil. And so Spotify remits 150 million and also a list of all the streams that they put out, you know, who, who, which songs they played and how many times. And if the which song they play and how many times does not add up to enough royalties to come out to $150 million, then what you've got left is what's called unattributed revenue, right? Revenue that is not generated by any specific stream, but is instead part of the, the guaranteed minimum payout. And those unattributed royalties can again go straight to the shareholders and not to the musicians. And so when Universal negotiates a lower per stream rate, it increases the unattributed royalties as well. It gets its workers in two ways. Spotify itself has been very busily acquiring other companies, particularly content companies, podcasters for the most part, and then locking them up inside a walled garden. So taking them out of the open ecosystem where any podcatcher can play them and putting yeah. them into this walled garden where you have to be inside of Spotify's network, subject to its terms of use and so on, in order to listen to the music and or the podcasts. And so this is what we call choke point capitalism in this book that we have coming out, whose title we should yeah. have finalized by tomorrow, right? Where you have a firm that creates a bottleneck, a choke point between customers and suppliers, and it charges the suppliers to reach the customers and it charges the customers to reach the suppliers. So that would be yeah. a company like Uber or also a company like Spotify or also a company like Audible. Everyone who's ever bought Audible audiobooks has the Audible player on their device, and it's the only player that they use for the most part to listen to audiobooks. Anyone who wants to make an audiobook would therefore be wise to sell into Audible, because otherwise that audience who are trapped inside of Audible's wall garden won't be able to see their audiobooks. If you search for it, you won't find it, because the place you search for audiobooks is Audible's search tool. And uh, what that means is that more audiobooks end up in Audible's walled garden as well. And if you're a listener who's just getting into audiobooks, there's a pretty good chance that the audiobook that you want is in Audible's walled garden. And so you join the other side of the walled garden, on the other side of the, the pinch point, the choke point, where, where Audible is squatting and extracting rent in both directions. And so every time a listener joins, it's a reason for a writer to join. And every time a writer joins, it's a reason for a listener to join. And the yeah. upshot of that is you, you have these really powerful effects that allow firms to gouge their customers and uh, gouge their suppliers, uh, steal wages from their workers. And what do you think all this is doing to culture in terms of having diversity of voices and views out there? Well, you know, on the one hand, like it's it's like facially obvious that if you reduce the number of ultimate decision makers about culture to four or five actors that they are going to be definitionally less diverse than a universe of actors, right? The, a whole bunch of different market actors who each have a small amount of authority, but none of whom can actually like exercise dispositive authority. On the other hand, it should be noted, you know, if we're going to be intellectually honest about this, that Audible mostly doesn't give a shit, right? They, they, um, yeah. they're, they're whatever it is, they'll just shovel it in. In fact, one of the big problems I've had is that on ACX, unscrupulous fraudsters will pretend to narrators that they have the rights for me to produce audio editions of my books. 
And they'll yeah. sucker narrators into profit sharing arrangements where they will put in 50 or 100 hours reading and refining yeah. one of my audiobooks, which I then have to send a takedown notice for. Because my, bo yeah. my books are not available on Audible. I mean, and they won't be until Audible drops this horrendous DRM requirement. And so Audible has like no QA on that side. I mean, notionally for sure, I think bad things can happen. You know, there was a... um a book that came out a couple of years ago by some law professors I know called something like The End of Private Property, about how DRM means that we don't have private property in the way that we've historically thought about it, where it's yours and you can do whatever you want with it. Uh, in the 16th century, Blackstone defined pri private property as that which man enjoys sole and despotic dominion over to the exclusion of all <laughs> other people in the universe. That kind of private property doesn't exist if, like, you can't get it repaired at the place you wanted to get it repaired, and you can't buy apps from the place you want to buy apps, and you can't take it to a third-party reader if you want to take it to a third-party reader. All of those restrictions, which have moved from just digital devices to things like coffee makers and cars and so on. And in the ebook version, they had a chapter on how Apple abuses this power to lock people in on devices and media. And Apple's bookstore refused to carry their book because they said, we have a policy that you are not allowed to use an Apple trademark without permission from Apple in books that are in the Apple store. And to be clear, it's not a trademark violation to say Apple's iBooks program has onerous restrictions, even if Apple doesn't give you permission. That's the trademark uh, violations have to create confusion in the marketplace. That doesn't create confusion. But Apple, as the gatekeeper, was able to have a self-serving uh, rule that said that, like, basically, you can't criticize Apple in Apple's bookstore. Yeah. Well, well, that's that is repressive. I, I'm convinced. Uh, I listened to a sample of an audiobook on Amazon the other day, and I'm convinced it was a robot narration. Mm, um, yeah, maybe. I, I inquired. I inquired about it with with ACX, which is the distribution uh, interface for, for getting books onto Audible. And they said, oh, it doesn't sound robotic to us. And, well, it did to me. Yeah, and I think some of these some of these books are not only being hijacked through the ACX platform, but sure. are even being narrated by machines now. I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, that, that sounds perfectly plausible to me. And you know what? Like, I'm not going to say that that's the worst possible outcome. If you know what you're getting... Right. If it's a if it's a public domain work and it doesn't exist in any other format, you know, my 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 friend Bruce Sterling's wonderful science fiction writer. Uh, the first time I lived out in Los Angeles, he was living here as well. And he I moved here from London. He moved here from Texas and he moved out. We were both out here to do guest teaching stints. I had a Fulbright at the University of Southern California and he was a visiting lecturer at CalArts. And he had a novel due and he was driving all of his worldly goods from Austin to Los Angeles and he strapped his laptop into the passenger seat on a four-day drive and had it read his latest novel back to him. And every time he mm -hmm. heard something he didn't like, he pulled over and fixed it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's certainly a legitimate and good use of of having AI read a book. But uh, when when unscrupulous operators go into the ASX platform, sure. claim a book that doesn't belong to them and either then give it to an unsuspecting narrator to waste their time on or submits it to machine recording, then it just uh, adds no, no, insult I, I to agree. injury. 
So what I mean to say is, if there was a book I wanted to read uh, as an audiobook, and no one had actually professionally read it, uh, and there was a service where I could get uh, a moderately high-quality uh, machine text-to-speech edition, and it was labeled as such, and the author wasn't was either consensually involved or the work was in the public domain... That I don't see a problem with. And so all the problems yeah. that, that, the, the problem isn't the robot voice, right? The problem is mislabeling, uh, uh, misappropriating and so on, right? Those are, those are the actual problems. So if you were, if you were tomorrow appointed to the leadership of the FTC or the DOJ, what would be your first courses of action with regard to Audible? Well, I think that the thing that's exciting about AudibleGate is that it um, it's unlawful, uh, unambiguously unlawful in present-day terms without needing any new interpretations of existing laws or new laws. So I would just open an what investigation is? into the wage theft. I would just say, look, you, you know, it's like... Wage theft, okay. Yeah, you're not allowed to... You, you have contractual arrangements with these uh, rights holders. Those contractual arrangements are pretty unambiguous. You've misrepresented the commercial relations between them. We're going to open an FTC investigation. We're going to audit you. We're going to make you open your books. We're going to ex we're going to expose right. that to rigorous forensic accounting. We will extract penalties from you that are exemplary damages, and as well as uh, damages that make the the writers whom you've stolen from whole. And yeah. and so that's you know like if I were being tactical, that's what I would do. I mean, more long term and, and you know, st stipulating that they, they're not just the head of the FTC, but you have unlimited budget and enforcers, I would open up a process that would be intended to ultimately result in the breakup of Audible and Amazon. I would yeah. also add to the existing DOJ executive order or the, the existing White House executive order. I would add new executive action on abuses of DRM. And I would maybe do a study in brief Congress on the reasons that uh, DMCA 1201 should be revised so that you had to have what's called a nexus with infringement to enforce the DMCA. So in other words, what you would what you would say is that removing DRM is illegal if you do so in order to infringe a copyright. But if you don't if you don't infringe a copyright, then removing DR DRM is not illegal. And so what that would do is is go well beyond the audible question. And it would go to things like whether it's illegal to reinitialize an engine part for a John Deere tractor so that when you take a, a working part out of a broken engine and put it into the broken engine of a working tractor, you can just turn the tractor on and it'll drive, as opposed to now, where if you do that, you then have to spend $250 and wait up to 48 hours while an authorized field technician from the John Deere company comes out and types an unlock code into your console. So, you know, I, there, are, there are so many abuses that actually go well beyond the audiobook realm with DRM and, and are most pernicious yeah. actually in the physical world. This became a really hot issue with Medtronic's workhorse ventilators during the lockdown. The Medtronic's the largest med tech company in the world. They engaged in a, the largest um, tax inversion in the history of the world where they allowed themselves to be sold to a minuscule Irish company in order to avoid American corporate tax. Uh, and they make the most popular ventilator in the world and they use DRM to stop independent repair. And during the lockdown, technicians couldn't come to your hospital and bless the repair that your med tech had done. And so you just had no working ventilator. And so yeah, I would I would just make that, a, you know, my next course of action, right, is to is to pressurize Congress in every way I knew how to enact reforms to the to DMCA 
to allow for non-infringing uh, uh, circumvention of DRM. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted a, a symptom of the corporatist structures that are affecting humanity. And one area it plays out is in the profiteering over COVID. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's I, that's not so much a DRM question as a competition question, although DRM is a powerful way to remove competition from the market. But, you know, the the folks at Insider, Business Insider, have been doing a really good job of tracking this down, where they're, they're looking at all these companies that have experienced so-called inflation, where their prices have, in fact, gone up. And allegedly, those prices have gone up because their labor has become more expensive or because their materials have become more expensive. But these business reporters have just gone and looked at the quarterly reports and the investor calls that the CEOs of companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble do, and they say, "Oh yeah, we've had minor increases in our expense as a result of uh, labor shock and supply shocks, but we've actually increased our profits off the back of that because everybody yeah. knows, quote unquote, that prices are going up, and so we've been able to raise prices well above." any additional prices that we experience as a consequence of, of labor and supply shock. And, you know, sure. the unspoken part is we don't have any competition. So if Unilever and Procter and Gamble both embark on this project, which they both have, and they both goose their profits four to 5% in the last quarter, then there isn't a third giant packaged goods company that can say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to, um, slash our prices in order to seize the market that you're alienating with your high prices. That's just it. Like two, they just need two of them to collude or yeah. arrive at the same conclusion through some miracle of uh, emergent behavior. And then the prices just go up. And so yeah. absolutely the lack of competition has led to price increases. Yeah. In fact, uh, when it goes all the way back to Adam Smith, who was warning about that, that merchants never, gathered together in a coffee house, but they were there to collude against the public. So it's an age-old trend. It's a, it's a very infamous quote, that one. Yep. So, Corey, I've had quite an education today from you, and uh, you're uh, clearly uh, very steeped in this subject. If people want to find out more, where would you send them to? Well, the, the, the best place to start if you want to follow my work is Pluralistic. Uh, so that's at pluralistic.net. This is, okay. I, 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 it's a blog and I've been blogging since there was blogging. I, I'm one of the owners and for 19 years was one of the writers on Boing Boing, which is the, I guess, the most popular blog left these days. And uh, I left in, in early 2020 and started Pluralistic as a kind of modern take on the blog. So you can read it on a blog website if that's your thing. But okay. all of the blog posts also come out daily as Twitter threads and as threads on Mastodon. They're also available as posts on Tumblr. They're also available as an RSS feed that's in full text. So you can just read the whole thing in your RSS reader. Also available as a newsletter uh, that comes with no tracking or ads. Uh, the website also okay. has no tracking or ads. And yes, and then I also do a weekly podcast of the, some of the best of those. So you can get it kind of however you want. But the canonical versions are on a website that I control and that has no advertising, no tracking, no surveillance of any kind. I don't even count how many readers come to it. Nothing. You're walking your talk. I am walking my talk. And then EFF.org, Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, yeah. that's, you know, the professional side of my activist work. And if you want to follow what's going on in activist land, that's the place to go. Cool. Any more final thoughts? 
Um, just, I guess that I would say that, that, uh, I think Audible Gates on the right track in as much as it's locating the problem and its solution in collective action rather than individual action. You know, this, uh, yeah. well, if you don't like it, why did you put your books on Audible is such a, a simplistic idea. And, you know, we've seen yeah. that idea kind of fall out of favor in the climate world where we, we're finally at the end of the like, well, if you don't like it, why don't you dig your own uh, underground tunnel and create your own public transit system instead of driving a car. And we're now saying, okay, actually this is, this is a problem that needs collective action and state intervention and not just individual choices as consumers or creators that these are, these are collective yeah. action problems. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Corey. Right, it's been cheers. a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Cheers. Let's talk to okay. you later. Bye. 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 So Cory Doctorow mentions Spotify, and Spotify doesn't have the greatest reputation with creators of content, whether that's uh, musicians or people who have podcasts. There's a few uh, notable examples of late of people who are well-known who've had trouble with their podcasts, and I know this has been an ongoing issue with musicians and artists. I think Cory Doctorow brought it up very well how musicians are, don't get paid fairly. There's a tremendous amount of inequality in terms of Spotify paying people for their created efforts or their created works. Yeah, and, and the concern is, well, how is the audiobook market looking now? I don't know if the purchase has gone through, but it's in the works, at least, of Spotify buying Findaway. And my concern is that we're going to end up with a duopoly uh, we're already being squeezed by Audible. Audible has already distorted the market in favor of themselves against both the creators and the listeners. And, I mean, you can understand why other suppliers would consolidate and buy each other up so they can have some kind of uh, weight to counter Audible. Good, all right. Well, um, I hope it won't be so long till we get our next podcast out. Uh, Always a pleasure, William, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks to Orquesta Tipica Fernandez Fierro for the music. This is Audible Gate.